All of us know how important it is to put good things in our bodies to help us stay strong. That desire was the inspiration for a line of wellness teas from Bigelow called Bigelow Benefits. Bigelow Benefits teas fuel your body with good-for-you ingredients like lemon and echinacea to help you stay well, rose and mint to relieve stress, and for a good night's sleep, chamomile and lavender. Bigelow Benefits, redefining wellness every day. Available at your local grocer on Amazon or at BigelowTea.com. Bigelow Tea, grab a mug and tea proudly. I just read an amazing book. It was hard to read. It was painful. But there's always hope. And that was what was so beautiful about this book. When my mother passed away in 1995, and then my grandfather passed away six months later, and he was my favorite person. I remember the movie Hope Floats came out. And I'm like, that movie looks so stupid. There isn't any hope. And I was in this really dark place. And then eventually, I, I came out of it. And uh, it, it's funny, though, when you're in the thick of it, it, it can be really hard to see the light. So this book was just absolutely tremendous. Enough about me. I'm going to bring in the fantastic Deirdre Maloney. The book is Unfold Me, Unfold Layers of Your Wounded Heart and Begin Living Your Dream Life. Deirdre, so honored to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here and to connect with your listeners. I want to start when you were a little girl. You write that you were an extremely shy as a young child, and you wrote, I always hid behind my mother, hoping it would render me invisible. You were pretty young at that time. Tell us what was going on for you. Yeah, I was really young. And when I think back to my early childhood, I don't really have a lot of memories and from what I understand, trauma can do that to you. It can yes. kind of suppress some of your childhood memories. I just remember being really shy and scared. And I think there was a disconnect between me and my mother. I don't, I think she experienced a lot of trauma that she never spoke about. It's just something as I've aged that I've come to understand um, that she never dealt with. And I think that prevented her from having a deeply connected relationship to me. And I felt that as a child and so that's why it's so important for us to, to process our trauma because it shows up in our relationships and it definitely was showing up in my childhood relationship uh, with my mom. And so I think there's also a lot of trauma just there, like that, um, you know, you hear about generational trauma, passing trauma down. Yes. I think um, that that is part of my story as well, that I did have this trauma come down from my mother and didn't understand it as a child and just felt really lonely a lot of the time. Yeah, you know, when I was reading in the book about your mother, you, you wrote, the, your writing is beautiful. You write, as a child, I desperately wanted my mother's love and attention. I don't have many memories of tender moments shared with her. Whenever I came to her for a random affectionate hug or wanted to run my fingers through her hair, I was greeted with a flutter of hands pushing me away, shooing me, not like you would a bee or spider, more like you would a cobweb, quick, irritated, and with a hint of silly. The silly part, I believe, was added to soften the blow. She had no idea she was thickening the walls of my cocoon. Yeah, and I really felt that as a child. Yeah, I really felt that she just really, I knew she loved me, but I didn't feel any connection to her. And yeah, it was really, it was difficult, you know, and it still is today. It's still something that I am working through, even though I've done so much work, this is something that it's a constant, like that mother daughter bond 
it's a really difficult, <laughs> can be a difficult relationship. And I really admire women that have strong relationships with their mothers. It's so beautiful. And, um, but when I hear about them, it does kind of, you know, it just, you feel a little bit hurt in your heart that you, you didn't get to have that experience because you know, it exists. Um, yeah. And, but then I have compassion for my mother. I, I do forgive her because I understand that she, I think she did the best she could. I really do believe that. And um, so I, I can have compassion for her. So you mentioned that when you spoke in front of people, you shared you were molested at six, you were raped at 10, you were involved with men in your teens. When you were 12, there was a 35-year-old guy, and this is all on the men. And it brought tears to my eyes. For you, you just wanted some love. But they were like predators and pedophiles and these horrific people. Yeah, that's one thing when I look back at my story, I think to myself, who are these men? You know, they knew my age. I never lied about my age. Like it was always, you know, that I was 10 or 12 or 14. And it, it just really is disturbing to know because, I mean, there's lots. Like I would say by the time I was 14, I mean, we're talking up to 100 men. By that age that's that's a lot of men and no judgment on you by the way yeah and there's so much shame with that right, right. because you know you know the words slut whore that that's what's associated with a girl that does those things and so i carried that for a long time but now as an adult i can look back and say like i was a little girl like i had no idea what i was doing it's introduced to sex so early and for me that was how I would receive love. I yeah. thought if this, this is what I do, then they will like me. They will love me. And I was just constantly looking for it. So for them as the predator, they're just coming in for the act. So then they would leave immediately. Yep. So for me, it was like, okay, I need to find the next one. Maybe that will be my true love, my boyfriend. Right. So I'm going into it thinking this is going to be my forever partner. They're going to love me and take care of me. Right. Yep. Even at the age of 12. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're coming into it just to get the act. And I'm, but I'm not seeing that at that age. Oh, of course. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, well, it's interesting. It's kind of tragic because I, in my 20s, I got into like a sex love addiction pattern. Um, as a teen, I was very, and everyone already knows this, I was very awkward. I was very skinny. I had the body of like a 12-year-old boy until I was 17. Like a skinny, mm. I mean, I was so skinny that people would be like, are you sick? What's wrong with you? I just didn't come into myself. And then when I turned 18, I literally like grew everything <laughs> overnight. I went from straight as an arrow to like curvy. Yeah. And I suddenly got all this attention. So I was always seeking love. And so I would go from guy to guy. And I was always like, but they're going to stay. And then they wouldn't. And I would be devastated like we were madly in love. And I literally met the guy an hour ago. And I would get so attached. I always think if I had been pretty and developed, I would have started this younger. Mm. I have a I have a good friend who was gorgeous and at 13 she started having sex with a 19 year old and that he was very abusive and then she you know throughout her 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 teen years it was just different guys and this and that and I remember being so jealous at the time I thought I was just this horrible creature but now I'm like late blooming is okay late blooming is amazing because you had early blooming and that was really tough yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah, it's called precocious puberty. And so oh. when I was six, I had the bone structure of a 12-year-old. Holy crap. And um, yeah, but I had my period when I was nine, which is quite young. Um, yeah. 
you know, you're not, you don't understand anything about that. And especially when you live in a house where things are swept under the rug, my mom never really explained anything to me. Did you even know what was happening? Like, were you like, why am I bleeding? I don't really exactly remember, um, but I do know it was really confusing. And I know the first time that I had sexual intercourse at the age of 10 and having the blood in my pants, I didn't understand that. That was like, oh, what, what's this? Yeah. And I remember hiding it at the bottom of the laundry hamper under all the clothes. And my mother never mentioned it to me. Now, I had already had my period, so she must have thought I just got my period, right? And you were raped. That wasn't, that was, and and let me say a 10-year-old can't give consent, but I mean. Yeah, because at the age of 10, I, I went into that, you know, he asked me if I was a virgin and I had to think, okay, does a virgin have sex or not have sex? I didn't under, you know. didn't understand it and I think I said no and we had sex and you know I went into it wanting to but I had no idea what it meant yeah right no idea yeah well you said at one point he put his hand over your mouth right because you were crying and screaming yes yeah yeah it was uh it's funny looking back at it if it was someone else's story, I would think, God, how did you survive that? How are you right. even here? But because it's me, I, I don't, it's, it, you know, it, it, I've almost separated myself from it. It's like compartmentalizing parts of your life. And that was over there. It's almost like a movie or something that right. I watch. Yeah, it doesn't, I've, I've moved so far past it, I guess, that it, um, I can kind of look at it as if it were a movie almost. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering, did you have or have you had dissociative episodes? Because the women that I know who experience a lot of trauma, especially sexual assault, sexual abuse, they tend to, they, they'd have dissociative episodes. Yeah, I would say I definitely removed myself from situations. I mean, especially through the prostitution as a teenager, you, it's almost like you become a different person. You allow right. like something else kind of to come in and take over. Um I don't know about the dissociative. I never was diagnosed with anything like that or, um, yeah, but there's definitely a removal of yourself from the situation to cope with it. Yeah. And speaking of coping, drugs is like the natural thing. I mean, there's so much trauma. So of course you're going to get involved with drugs. I mean, what else are you going to do? It's too flipping much. Yeah. It becomes a medication. Like if you fall into it and you find it, it's going to make you feel really, really good. And yeah, you definitely, um, you know, releases all those chemicals in your brain that, that you want kicking to, to make you feel good. And, uh, the drugs did a really good job. And, and then it becomes a cycle, a vicious cycle because you're, you know, you're doing the, the acts, but then you got to do the drugs to, to cope with the fact that you're doing the acts. And then it just, and then when prostitution gets involved and you've got the money, well, now you have to keep doing the prostitution so you can keep paying for the drugs to make yourself feel normal. And you know, it's just such a vicious cycle to get drawn into. It really yeah. is. And I think for so many, they don't, you don't hear a lot of stories like yours. What, what do you think it is? Do you think you were born with a certain resilience? And, and by asking that, I am not at all taking away the incredibly hard work that you've done. I don't want it to come off like that. I think resilience is something that we can cultivate within ourselves. And the, one of the ways I've done that is through meditation. I think that's a really important topic um, for anybody that's experienced trauma or has addiction. Um, that meditation, you know, it, it really helps to rewire our brains and that helps you to build the resilience. 
Um, so I started a, a meditation practice. It was, uh, I committed to three weeks. My therapist told me just do three weeks. Uh, cause that's, you know, proven three weeks that you, you fall into a new routine. So I said, okay, I will do that. I committed to the three weeks and then I just kept wanting to do it. And it's not like I felt some magical thing happen or I felt so much better, but there was a little bit of an ease, you know, to the anxiety, to the stress, to that daily pressure. So I thought, oh, there's some, there must be something to this. And so I just kept going. And as the months went by, I just really started feeling so much better and just sort of more in control of my emotional roller coaster. Yes. And, you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 23 and had been medicated um, for many years. And by the time I started a regular uh, meditation practice, it had been 13 years on medication. And I really started feeling a lot better. And I was also using uh, CBD and THC to help me manage my anxiety and to help me sleep because I had a lot of insomnia and a lot of nightmares, which is really common with post-traumatic stress. And I was just so tired of the nightmares, a lot of sexual addiction, uh, drugs, just not um, necessarily clips from my past, but like associated with, right? Right. And so the, t the, the THC and CBD tinctures, which I took in an oil form before I went to sleep, just made me sleep like a baby. And I was so happy to have beautiful sleeps and, and not these crazy dreams. And so after a while with the meditation and the CBD and THC, I thought, you know, I wonder if I can come off my medication. I'm feeling pretty good. And I have in the past tried coming off of it a few times. I would usually last about two weeks. Anxiety would start to raise. And I'd be like, no, 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 this isn't right. I need to get back on my meds. Um, but this time I stayed off for a few months and I was seeing my therapist regularly and I was like, you know what? I think I'm doing okay. Like, I feel like the meditation has really helped me rewire my brain. And so, like you said, with the resilience, I think that that just really helped me to cultivate it. And I think anybody can do that. I feel like if people gave meditation a chance because it's hard, it's funny it's not difficult, but it's so difficult. So hard. Right, that five or ten minutes a day, and sometimes I only do it for five minutes. So it's a small chunk of time, and it's free. Right? We don't. Yep. We can go on YouTube if you have internet. You you have free access to great meditation tools, and so just for that fact that it's free, it takes just this little amount of time that we could cultivate, you know, our own resilience and um, more balanced emotional health. Uh, I just feel like everybody should be doing it. And I, I think schools are starting to implement it, but I would love to see it start in kindergarten, you know, even just two minutes a day with the kids, just do a little short meditation or body scan. And then, you know, each grade you, you add on and you do a little more and you learn a little more. And I, I think that that would just be so beneficial. I would love to see that. Happen. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, that for me has been greatness. So I've been off medication now for two years. That's I am awesome. open to getting back on it if I ever need it. I, I think it did change my life. It was a turning point for me getting on medita medication. Uh, but I do believe meditation is, or medication, meditation is medication. So yes. we can use that as a tool. Now, do you think you had bipolar or do you think it was more the trauma? Because you wrote something about that in the book. Yeah, so, well, they said that the, the trauma can... So that, that's where I got the idea of rewiring my brain back to health is they said trauma can bring on bipolar disorder. So it's almost, I guess it can open up a gene that you may already have inside you. And this trauma can kind of bring it on. It's like flicking switch, I suppose. 
And so that's where I thought if, I, if the trauma could bring on this bipolar disorder, then why can't I rewire my brain back with health, right? With doing wow. healthy things. That's amazing. You know, I want to jump into some of these healthy things, but first I just, for people who are like, wait, 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 how did she get, okay, how do you get from where she was? I don't want to give away the whole book. When I read a memoir, I like to be careful because I take so many notes that I literally could like, I have about a hundred quotes to read and I'm like, no, I'm just gonna, I want to get it from you and how much you want to share. You just mentioned that the medication was a turning point, but something had to get you there. And I know that when you were pregnant with your fourth child, and you had had an IUD, and you, there was like a breakdown. If you could just tell us a little bit about it. And people still have to get the book, though. There's so much, so much. Yeah, so pregnant with my fourth child, I was um, 38 years old. We were not planning on having more kids. We were actually just starting an early retirement. Um, we had downsized our house. Uh, we had uh, set up some good investments to have uh, financial freedom, uh, we had planned a lot of uh, vacations and we were both um, competitive cyclists and we were very much into our sport. And I find out that I'm pregnant and it's just, it's shocking and it's devastating because it wasn't part of the plan. And I had had postpartum depression with my last two pregnancies, which is actually why we decided not to have another because originally I wanted four kids. I had wanted to have that many but it was too hard on our marriage. And that is in our book. We had a lot of trouble and just, we had so much to work through. So I'm three months along already when I find out, right? And the oh, doctors are actually yeah. pushing me to pull out the IUD, which is most likely going to cause a miscarriage. Oh. Yeah. Even though I, I don't want to be pregnant, this isn't part of the plan. All of a sudden, when they're telling me I'm going to lose it, I think, no, 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 this can't happen. And so I decided not to pull out the IUD against the doctor's recommendations. I actually saw three, a doctor, a um, obstetrician, and then a specialist. I kept saying, refer me to someone else, refer me to someone else. So important to take your health into your own hands. Yes. And finally, when I get to the specialist, she says, you know what? I've seen many women do this successfully. I will help with the pregnancy. Um, go forward with it. I think you'll be okay. And I believed in my intuition I would be fine. But somehow this sort of traumatic event of getting pregnant and maybe not keeping the pregnancy, it brought everything back up again. Um, and I think it sort of sent me into a depression, which maybe going back into the depression, it, that those feelings around it is maybe what started to bring up some of my, my past, which honestly, at this point in my life, I'm 38 years old, I thought I'd recovered. Like I thought I, because I'd done lots of therapy, years and years and years of it, I thought, no, I'm fine. This isn't something I need to deal with anymore. It's in the past. I'm okay. But that wasn't the case. And I went into a severe depression while I was pregnant to the point where I couldn't leave the house. I would have just extreme anxiety. I was having suicidal thoughts, uh, you know, telling my husband he would be better off without me. Him and the kids would be better if I wasn't here, which is absurd. I mean, I homeschool my kids. So we have a fabulous time together. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a great relationship. So looking back, it's like, God, it's crazy what our brain can tell us lies oh, yeah. right? when, yep. you're, when you're mentally ill it tells you lies and so I finally got in with this therapist and she recommended I join a women's support group so I thought at this point I'm willing to try anything even though I was terrified because I didn't have a lot of close female relationships I, I'd never I had my one girlfriend who was my best friend but other than that 
because through childhood, female relationships were always competitive and it was always, you know, I'm going to one up you or, you know, I'm going to take your boyfriend. And it just was always so negative. So I didn't realize that women had special bonds and special relationships. And I go to this women's uh, group and I went in there and I divulged everything. I said, none of these women know me. I'm just going to say it all to get it off my chest and tell them everything and I did. And, you know, they all accepted me. They said, wow, like, look at how resilient you are. What a great story. You know, you're, and look at who you are today. You're amazing. And hearing those words from these women that I didn't know was life changing for me. I thought, wow, they accept me. They don't have to, cause they don't know me. It's not like, you know, I'm a friend and I've told them this, they really don't have to. And some of those women have become some of my closest friends today Mm. Um, so that was life-changing and that is where community is so important and I hear from a lot of women that have just recently come out of addiction tell me that they don't trust women they don't have relationships and I totally get that because I was there but you have to find the right ones because they're out there there are people out there that genuinely want to help you that care about you and it's just about making those right connections and changing your mindset to believe that something better for you is out there. You've got to speak up. And this is what was so huge for you. And I do want to get back into things that happened to you in childhood, but that idea of you're carrying around the shame and this guilt and this horror and this panic, and you're taking it out on yourself and hurting yourself instead of just being open with the world, right? And you talk about that shame and that vulnerability and that vulnerability hangover that you had when you started sharing. Yeah, the vulnerability hangover. I first heard of that through Brene Brown, who I just absolutely love her work. And uh, I'm a huge fan. And she talks about this vulnerability hangover. And the first time I went out to speak publicly, um, I was just at a local event. We call it Mo Mondays. And you go there and you, you share any story you want. And you get up on stage and you have, uh, you know, 10 minutes or something. So I decided that this is it. This is it. I am going to go out and I'm finally going to share my deepest, darkest secrets. I need to let them go. Most people might think, well, I'll tell a therapist, but I was like, no, I need to tell everybody. I I have to like unveil sort of, um, I was just tired of living in secrecy. So I get up on stage, you know, I I tell my whole story. I dig into, you know, rape and, um, you know, being uneducated and, uh, um, you know, just addiction and mental health. And I go up there and I say it all and I feel amazing afterwards. I'm like, oh. God, that felt great. You know, I finally got it out there and I, I don't feel ashamed of myself. My girlfriend texts me later that night. She's like, Hey, how are you doing? I'm like, Oh, I'm amazing. She's like, well, call me if anything comes up. I'm like, no, no, nothing's coming up. This, this felt great. The next morning I wake up and I was like, Oh God, what did I do? And I just wanted to pull the covers over my head and hide all day long. And it feels like a hangover. Like I needed to lay on the couch with the blankets, with a cup of tea and just like nurse myself because it was just, you know, I couldn't believe that I I shared this stuff and I thought, what, what does everybody think? Right. And just so consumed with how do people see me now? Yeah. So that, that is real. The vulnerability hangover. (laughs) I am so glad that you were vulnerable and that you, withstood the vulnerability hangover and kept on going. And one of the things that helped keep you going was your amazing self-care routine. You talked about meditation already. You also talk about yoga, being active, 
the support group. Uh, and I love this too, because I think this is great. Reading books written by women who have overcome shame is huge for me as well. We haven't really talked about shame. And I think that, that just holds so many women back, right? And men from getting that healing because somehow you feel like it's your fault when you told you're a, you're a child, mm. right? Talk to us about yes. the shame and what it felt like to talk about all these things. Yeah. The shame is huge and it's something that definitely held me back um, because I, you can't really have um, authentic relationships when you're hiding things about yourself. It's not like you have yeah. to tell everybody your story, but if you haven't accepted things about yourself, you can't, you don't open up fully right. to other people because you don't believe you're worthy of love, of, of quality friendships. And so it was that low self-worth piece for me that was holding me back. And the shame was definitely causing that. And, you know, we have people in our lives that shame us. And, you know, my parents definitely gave me feelings of shame. They didn't want me speaking about things. They didn't even want me speaking about these things with them. It was like, no, no, hush, hush, that's in the past. We have to get over it. They, they just wanted to, you know, fast forward through everything. And that's how they live their lives. And, you know, I think it, that, that ends up making people oh, yes. sick. I think a lot of physical illness, you know, comes from suppressing shame. And so that was a key piece in, in recovery is getting over it. So, you know, you may not be like me where you're going to get on stage and you're going to tell everybody <laughs> all your juice, but definitely find someone, you know, find a therapist, find a, a support group where you can go. And I've been to support groups, other ones that were not good, like just not well run. So you really, you sometimes got to do your homework. Like I've seen about five therapists. I've been to about three support groups. And so you got to shop around, right? It's like the first shirt you try on might not fit. You might have to try on five. And it's kind of the same with this type of care. You got to try different things and don't get discouraged. Just, Just instead of being discouraged, well, that didn't work. That person wasn't good. Say, okay, no, I'm one step closer to finding the right fit, yeah. right? And that's really important is to stay positive, oh, yeah. right? And I also found um, just doing one thing a day. So whether it's calling to find a support group or doing a meditation or, you know, calling, making an appointment with my family doctor to talk about medication, do something every day, one thing, go for a walk that will just move you in the right direction towards yeah. healing, right? It could be something small. Call a friend, just chat for five minutes. It'll lift your spirits. Um, don't sit in it, right? Don't sit in those those awful feelings. And the shame for me lifted when I started sharing parts of myself. You know, pick a person and just, and just share. And you got to get it out of your head. Like sometimes holding on to it, it makes it so much bigger when it's inside. And then when you start to release it, it, it starts to make it yeah, small. It, it's true. You know, there are people who, we all have people in our lives where we know they've been through trauma and they're like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a grown up now. I should just move on. But you see them hurting themselves in different ways, whether it be eating disorders or other, you know, self-harm things. You can't make somebody change, right? It's like that whole, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. How do you, what do you say to people who are in that situation to kind of help them realize that that, that, that that loved one has to come to it themselves? Or is there anything they can like kind of, I mean, other than your wonderful book, which I'm going to recommend to people I know, um, you know, to kind of like gently urge them? Or do you just need to just step back if they're not ready? Yeah, you know, it's difficult. I, I guess it depends on how personal right. the relationship is. Um, I'll say with my husband, 
you know, I was sitting in the depression and, you know, he coddled me a little bit in the beginning, but there came a day where he said to me very sternly, listen to me, I did not sign up for this. When we got married, I did not sign up to live this way. You cannot control the household and the marriage with your moods and your depression. You need to get better. You need to get help. And, you know, it was kind of a slap in the face, like, oh, God. And I realized, like, turn the, turn the, turn the situation around. Would I want to live like this with him? Right? And that's the thing is there's always hope, right? There's always hope. I say if, if I could go through these experiences that I've gone through, and I know people maybe have gone through worse, but I've gone through a lot and I've suffered so much. And if I can change and if I can find happiness and if I can have healthy, healthy love, I don't see why anyone else can't. So to say it's not possible or to say, you know, it's, it's too late or to say, no, I'm just going to move forward. It's, you don't have to live that way. You can get better. So I think applying a little bit of pressure to a loved one is it worked for me. I don't know if it will work for other people, but it, it actually happened twice in my life. So we'll go back to when I was 23 and I was working in the gym and I was addicted to drugs. So I'm a personal trainer. I look physically fit, you know, I'm eating healthy and then I'm going out on the weekends and I am partying all night long, not sleeping, lots of cocaine, alcohol. And so I'm living this kind of double life. And someone at the gym confronts me about it, another personal trainer. He says, I think you're using drugs on the weekend. And I kind of, you know, try to fluff it. And he says, no, 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 are you? And I said, yeah, I am. And he kind of shamed me. Like he said, you have a daughter. How, you're her role model. How can you be doing this? Like shame on you. And it was a slap in the face. And it, I went cold turkey the next day and I quit drugs and I never touched them again. So sometimes giving someone a little bit of a hard hand can arouse something in them that they need to get triggered, right? And so I had those two instances that I remember clearly of someone just being hard on me and saying, like, I'm not, like, this is not okay. What you're doing is not okay. You need help. You need to change. And it worked for me. So I don't know if that's advice for someone else that's um, struggling with someone in addiction or whatnot, but I think definitely setting boundaries with someone who is in addiction or depression that, you know, there's only so much you can tolerate as a person because it's not fair to put that on. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense. You know, we just have a few minutes, but I I want you to mention the amazing women's cycling group and all the incredible work that you're doing around that. Yeah. So I'm, you know, a competitive cyclist. I mentioned that and I decided to start a women's cycling team. We're now the largest uh, all-female team in Canada. It was really important to me to have an all-female team because in cycling, uh, when you're on a mixed-gender team, there's not a lot of representation for the women. Um, they kind of take a back seat. So I was like, no, like we deserve, we deserve attention. And, and I really wanted to help young women, so I started a youth development program uh, where there's some financial assistance and also just emotional assistance for young women in the sport to try to keep them in the sport because also um, competitive sport was a big um, help in me growing and healing, having that outlet to exert, um, you know, the anxiety and, and just have something to focus in. Um, So I knew that for these young women, that having sport in their life was really important, you know, 
because everyone experiences trauma at, to some degree, whether it's a, you know, a little bit of emotional neglect from a parent, maybe from a teacher, we all have these feelings inside. And so I knew how important it was for them to stay in sport and how easy it is for girls to leave sports. Because as you grow up, you know, the girls kind of uh, trickle down and they leave the sport. And so it's hard to find a community, especially in cycling. And so I wanted to kind of develop that community for them. And so we have an amazing program um, that supports them. And, and it's something that I'm really proud of. And actually 10% of the profits from Unfold Me go into the cycling team. Um, it's something that I do volunteer based. I, I don't make any money doing this. And I, I just really love it. It brings me a lot of Oh my gosh, joy. that is so great. Again, the book is Unfold Me and Fold Layers of Your Wounded Heart and Begin Living Your Dream Life. I want to have you back to talk more and I want to have you back to talk about your cookbook. So exciting. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so I developed a plant-based cookbook and I went plant-based about seven years ago. That has been a big part of my recovery as well. Uh, because I did have some trouble with uh, binge eating, body dysmorphia. Um, I touch on it a little bit in the book. I kind of wish I had spoken about it a bit more because I think a lot of women connect to those issues. Uh, so there might be another book in the, in the works. <laughs> and yeah, I just um, going plant-based, like I know how difficult it can be for people to find recipes. And, you know, I feel like I fine-tuned a really healthy, balanced um meal plan. So I thought I want to share it with people. So um, I did just publish that cookbook and it's available on Amazon and there's lots of healthy plant-based recipes that taste delicious in there. Um, And it's called Unfolding in the Kitchen, a little play off of the the first uh, book. Um, So yeah, that's really exciting. And it's fun actually when I go to cook something and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make my banana bread. It's like, oh, let me grab my cookbook. Isn't that a great feeling? Yeah, yeah, it was a fun project. Amazing. And I want to have you back as often as you'd like to come. I just, you're so inspiring and you just moved me tremendously, Deirdre. And I I can't wait to get your cookbook and have you back and just uh, tell us every way we can find you. Well, not every way. (laughs) My address is no. Uh, Tell us all the ways we can find you on social media. Yeah. So on Instagram, it's Deirdre Maloney underscore. And on Facebook, actually, I have a really great um, community. We have a Facebook group. It's called uh, Wellness From Within, uh, Fitness, Health, and Healthy Lifestyle. So if you're on Facebook, definitely look that up and uh, join us there. We um, do a lot of fun things in the group, and it's a really supportive community um, about mental health and mostly about being active, active lifestyle. But, yeah, it's a really cool Good. Spot, And what's your so. website? Yeah. Uh, dmaloney.com D-E-E Maloney D-E-E-M-A-L-O-N-E-Y.com Well, you're an absolute gem, Deirdre. I can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.